0: Unlike the Gospel of Luke, Matthew spends little time in Bethlehem at the manger, but instead Matthew's story, birth story, is more about who Jesus is, especially as Jesus is related to the Messiah, the expected Jewish Messiah. This morning's passage from the first chapter of Matthew, verses 18 through 25, give us an inside look at what is going on in these birth narratives, and I pray that the Spirit will open up our hearts and minds to the truth. Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged, betrothed to Joseph, but before they lived together... She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, but unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. It seems that I have picked up something of a cold, and so I pray for your forbearance. For some reason, the drama of the Gospels pretty much leaves the Father of Jesus out of things. He doesn't get a big marquee. Instead, it's Mother, the Mary, uh, Mary, the Mother of Jesus, who gets star billing. In fact, she ends up being the deified presence as in 19 excuse me 1856 when the catholic church announced that she in fact was conceived by virtue of uh, an immaculate conception not like jesus immaculate conception by the power of the holy spirit but that in her conception she was born having been fully removed from sin from her soul she was completely sinless joseph on the other hand Well, is just Joseph. How many paintings have there been of Mary at the creche holding, clutching that swaddling child? How many pietes have there been of Mary cradling that crucified Christ? Joseph seems to only show up in creche scenes in little models or in paintings looking like a normal father of a newborn child like a deer in the headlights, now not having any idea what he was going to do next and wondering if, in fact, this child who's come into their family was going to compete for his wife's affections. This morning's gospel, in fact, in Matthew is the lone gospel that gives us much of anything about Joseph. And in fact, we only get a little at that, just three verses where Joseph is the subject of the sentence. But closer inspection reveals a touching and poignant story about faith and courage, responsibility and hope. It's a poignant story about Joseph's character, Jesus' apparent father. Sometimes the best news is not always found in the titillating headlines on the front page this morning's paper as an example, but the real news is found underneath the story tucked away in places that you must dig for. Matthew, writing so predominantly to a Jewish Christian community, wants to justify Jesus' Messiahship to that community. So Joseph, the father of Jesus, plays a vital role. Matthew's gospel, if you read it, opens up in the first chapter with the begats, the genealogy of Jesus that leads from Joseph all the way back to David, son of David, all the way back to Abraham. For you see, The Jews understood that the Messiah must, in fact, be from the lineage of David and from Abraham. Matthew was making the case for Jesus, the Messiah. And from that genealogy, Matthew then moves immediately to this morning's passage where Mary and Joseph are engaged. Really, the modern term of engagement with big rings, social events, and the bride's mother frantically fussing to make sure that it's all done in good taste while the father frets about the actual cost of this thing, does not fit this story. In those days, marriage was not so much romantic and voluntary as it was a contractual obligation, usually arranged by family members. The arranged couple would become engaged, betrothed, promised, and to give them time to get to know each other, they would be watched. They would be watched to make sure that they grew closer together, but not too close together to avoid any impropriety which might lead to the possibility of adultery, which, according to Jewish law, was clear. It was a capital offense that ended in stoning, at least for a woman. Joseph was a dreamer, like his namesake in the Old Testament, who, as you would imagine, had big plans for his young bride and his to-be family that he would raise. He was trained as a carpenter. He built yoke for oxen. He made furniture for houses. And some even have speculated that he built crosses for the Roman legions to crucify their criminals on irony of ironies. Like most soon to be husbands, he wanted to provide for and protect his family, even though he was not quite sure how nor what he was getting into. Then he gets hit with the news that is nuclear. Mary, his fiance, is with child. This was not the first time that a child had been conceived out of wedlock, nor would it be the last. In fact, according to a recent history about the sister of Benjamin Franklin, a third of the colonial marriages were forced marriages because of early pregnancies. And before the advent of birth control and abortion in the 1960s, those kinds of marriages happened way more often than we would be willing to admit. In fact, they still do. In this case, however, Joseph was not the father And he knew it. Matthew makes it clear. They were betrothed, but before they lived together, she was found with child. Found with child. Found. What a strange word. It begs the question, who found her? Certainly Mary herself, but then also her mother, Every menstrual cycle was carefully watched as it was thought in those days that during that time a woman was ritually impure. So when Mary, quite young, missed hers, then again the next month, I can only imagine the scene where Mary's mother and Mary sit down to talk about it. What must that interrogation have been like? Well, we know, according to the story, that she was with child, according to the power of the Holy Spirit, By the announcement of Gabriel to Mary, just imagine Mary trying to explain this spiritual encounter to her mother. Then, someone going out to find Joseph and telling him the good news, ha, explain that to him next. Matthew makes it clear that Joseph thought she had been caught in adultery in spite of the perceived spiritual circumstances, and that first night must have been unbearable for him. No sleep, only pacing back and forth, trying to think of some way out of this impossible mess. Joseph, Matthew says, being righteous, which means he followed Jewish law, knew that stoning was the result. But being unwilling to expose her publicly to that, or her family or his, to the shame of it, he came up with a plan to quietly break off the engagement. He would slip away the next day and take the heat as the father who had abandoned his pregnant wife with her child He would take the heat. In the middle of the night, it seemed like the only good choice. Often I counsel young couples, premarital counseling, that the old advice they are given never to go to bed angry could not be more wrong. How many times in my early married days did we stay up almost all night long, arguing because of that stupid proverb that someone had told us. My advice is, just go to bed. (laughs) Call a timeout, a truce, and go to sleep. Late at night, under the effect of fatigue, hormones, and who knows what else, one does not say things well, nor make good decisions. In the end, what difference does it make? What kind of a washing machine you're going to buy? Just go to bed. And during the night, something happens. You wake up wondering, what in the world was all that about? A night's sleep can resolve quarrels as the new day puts things in perspective. And the fight-or-flight hormones are more calm. However, in Joseph's case, the next day would only make it worse. This was no small thing a night's sleep would fix. In his case, it would take an act of God, exhausted, I imagine he finally fell asleep. The Bible understands that when one sleeps, all the walls of protection and self-consciousness have come down. And we are finally vulnerable to the truth that we might otherwise deny. Our dreams provide portals for the heavenly beings to enter. And this night for Joseph, one did. An angel declaring his first name, Joseph, who he is and whose he is. Joseph, son of David, reminding him of his place, reminding him that he was Joseph child of God. It got his attention. And the angel tells him, do not be afraid. The same words that Jesus used after the resurrection, do not be afraid. The same words that Jesus used time and again at all of those many moments of healing and incredible presence and love, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Joseph, son of David. Take Mary as your wife, telling him, in essence, whether he understood it or not, that this was about something way bigger than he was. For this child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son. And you are to name him Jesus. You are to name him, for he will be, for his people, save salvation from their sins. When Joseph waked, he was... Of course, changed by it all. And his solution was now at least clear, if not easy. He would marry her. He would maintain his commitment against all of his instinct. He would marry her against all of his hopes and his plans. He would marry her against the Jewish law. He would marry her because God had come to him by an angel in the night and told him, do not be afraid. So as I see it, Joseph is the hero in this story and deserves star billing as much as Mary. Willing to disengage from his own hopes and plans to stay engaged to Mary based only on a dream willing to give up all of his plans because God had given him a new one, completely different than the one he had chosen or hoped for. And in this sense, to me at least, Joseph reveals to us what true faith and character is built on. Adversity, perseverance, and hope that the future is God's, not ours. You see, at minimum, this story reminds us that maybe it's not about our plans that matters. As someone said, if it's not about me, it's not worth talking about. In reality, as someone, I think it was Churchill who said, life is what happens to you when you're not talking about yourself or when you're not doing what you planned. Life is what happens to you when you are interrupted They've done studies on human happiness, they being, you know, they, the professional they, that the least happy people are those who cannot adapt easily to changing plans and cannot face adversity with anything but stiff-necked anger and bitterness. Throughout their lives, we look back with resentment and regret about the parent who prevented me from doing or being something Or the unfortunate event that happened that changed everything or the bad breaks in my life that kept me from becoming what I wanted to. Therefore, the studies show most happy folks are those who are able to face adversity and change with character and courage, hoping somehow a change in plans may open up unforeseen possibilities and opportunities. Believing, as the adage goes, that when one door is closed, another one will be opened. And they say, those they that do this study, that some of this ability is inherited, that we are born on some continuum of positive or negative, or being optimistic or pessimistic, that we're just born by our DNA to have this trait, but not all of it. Not all of it is inherited. We have some choice which makes us human, that choice. We can actually choose to face adversity and change with hope and faith or resentment and anger. And how we do it, studies say, determines whether we are happy and, in my words, more spiritually fulfilled. No matter the issue, illness or divorce or trauma or loss of job, with hope and faith, we face it, trusting that something new might even be born because of it. Instead of languishing in the why question, we spend our energies instead on the how questions. How will God use this now for good? How can I be now a witness to something that's good and hopeful how can I live a more positive life that's giving? It makes all the difference whether we look back or whether we look forward. By the way, uh, that's not the end of the lesson. There's a psychologist by the name of C.R. Snyder who has done studies on children as they become adults. And what he studied is the amount of adversity these children have faced growing up. He says that most healthy young adult children are those whose parents have not protected them from adversity throughout their young lives. Something we all do as parents is to keep our children right down the straight and narrow and to protect them from all trouble and travail and adversity. Isn't that the job of the parent? But in in... In fact, ironically, he says the healthy adults are those who have faced adversity, and in that adversity they have learned that there is a wherewithal in themselves and outside of themselves through other people and through a presence of God. They have learned in that adversity that they can survive and manage. What he's discovered is that those kids who have not had that adversity, who grow up end up in complete hopelessness because they don't have any sense of hope in themselves or something greater than themselves to lead them forward. This, he says, is what builds character and gives courage to each of us. There's a passage in Romans, by the way, that speaks directly to this. It comes from Paul's letter beginning in the fifth verse. It goes... We boast in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our heart through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. And this, you see, is the real reason for this story. It's about God and how God uses the broken plans of all of us and the broken places in all of us, the brokenness in all the world God uses to shape something new out of, something unimaginably new and good and redemptive. From the tattered threads of seemingly adulterous relationships, Leading to a presumed divorce and possibly a stoning, God weaves through Joseph a story of commitment, faith, hope, and responsibility. He married her, took her as his wife in spite of it all. Soon they would go to Bethlehem, a journey not in their plans, of course, and to the manger A birthplace certainly not in Mary's plan for her newborn baby. And you would have thunk, wouldn't you, that since this is about God, it would have been better planned, at least cleaner, a little less mess. But then, who are we to think? God does it this way. That's the point and continues to do it this way, taking on our own flesh and being born in human form. In this mess, this is the source of our character and our courage and our hope that God is with us in the mess. In the middle of the dark night when we feel so powerless and shaken about what will happen next, Remember this story. Something new is about to be born. Let us bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labors.